Hey guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. Just before we get into this amazing Q&A with Mike Isratel again, uh, I want to again tell you guys that we have this giveaway that's happening uh, for a free ebook of my own, Get Big, Stay Lean, um, and also the Nutritional Principles for Health um, by Renaissance Periodization. Um, I'll also put links in below so you can learn more about those books, but we just want reviews on iTunes. That'd be fantastic. I don't want to spend too much time talking about that, but we do want more reviews so more people can see the show. Um, and this really incentivizes us to keep going. Um, and you want us to keep going. You want us to keep bringing Mike on. We're getting great of tons of comments on YouTube saying how much they're enjoying the podcast. Chuck them over on iTunes. Give us a four or five star rating. Um, it would be really appreciated. So without further ado, um, I will get straight into the podcast and I'm going to make sure if we've got any newcomers here, um, I'll put in links for Mike and where you can find out more about Mike below because we want to get straight into the Q&A and not waste too much time because obviously we have Mike on a lot. But I want to make sure everyone knows exactly who Mike is um, because he's a very smart guy and I think you can learn a lot from him. He, just, he may not say so, but he, uh, we'll find out. You'll find out right now. Um, so we'll get into the first question from Evan Gobi, Godby even. Um, who actually quoted, uh, dear legendary Super Sam, do you utilize, utilize diet breaks during fat loss phases? And if so, how do you prefer to structure them in regards to nutrition, cardio, and training? So uh, that's a great question from Evan. And hello, Evan. We're Facebook acquaintance. Ooh, connection problem. <laughs> We're back. <laughs> no worries. Is Evan Australian? Yeah, Evan is Australian. Oh, all right. Then, or you can't, or whatever they say to each other. <laughs> um, so there, there's a kind of a two-part answer or two, two delineating points I can make. One is about an answer about cheat meals. Another is an answer about longer periods of maintenance eating, uh, periods of a week to, I would say, four weeks. Why do I make that distinction? Cheat meal is one meal or maybe one day of, of high-calorie eating. It's going to have certain effects, and it's not going to have certain others. A diet break, um, in my mind, is something that lasts for a week to three weeks, because a week is now long enough to do some things that a day definitely doesn't. Um, but a uh, four-week period or longer, I would refer to as a maintenance phase. I wouldn't really so much call that a diet break. And as a matter of fact, if there's a month separating two hypocaloric phases, I would be inclined to say that that's actually two diets back-to-back -back with a maintenance phase in between. And that's just nomenclature, um, but uh, there is a point to be made there that you know it's not really the same thing that when you say a two-month break between diets. Notice how I said that between diets, it's not two-month break within a diet because you just tell people you're not dieting during that time. That still could be strategically to accomplish something, but at that point, it's two diets, right? So I'll answer the cheat meals question first, just to be very thorough. Uh, cheat meals, I think, are for most people wholly inappropriate. You should ask Jared about this. Jared Feather will have some things to say about cheat meals. So it's been demonstrated that she, and actually Lyle McDonald has written on the subject extensively. Cheat meals have been demonstrated to increase fat burning. 
They have been demonstrated to reduce the magnitude of hormones that increase hunger, to increase the magnitude of hormones that decrease hunger. And uh, thus it would seem to be, and, and they're also psychologically very pleasurable. And that would seem to be supportive of cheat meals. And here's the problem with that. All of those effects, when you only do a meal or a day of eating, are completely transient, and they last about as long as the cheat meal is in your stomach. Now, as soon as the cheat meal is gone, there doesn't seem to be any kind of carryover for heightened metabolism, for enhanced fat burning, or any kind of hunger hormones to be altered past the cheat meal. So that's on the positives. And the positives of cheat meal are not that great, and that's really all of them. You could say they break up the monotony of dieting, and that can be a positive, but I'll tell you how it can be a negative as well. I've made this analogy before. I'm going to make it here again. It's a, it's a pretty nasty analogy, but I think it still fits. When someone is psychologically tortured by uh, central intelligence agencies around the world, they don't actually just beat you all the time. They don't actually deprive you of sleep and food all the time. Because when everything is bleak and dark, the uh, individual tends to become quite hardened, and they're all very well trained if they get caught, if they're spies. They resist. And if something is bad enough, an individual just basically checks out and goes, you know what, I'm going to die doing this. I signed up for this. I'd like to die for my country. They're not getting shit. They're more clever than that. What they do is they do periods of bleak, periods of terrible, periods of awful. And occasionally they cut you some slack. They give you a pack of cigarettes. They give you a warm bed to sleep in. They give you a hot meal. They're very nice to you. And they try to get you to talk a little bit under no pressure. Just tell us something. We don't really want to keep beating you. We don't want to keep putting you in the hole. Tell us some stuff. And, and they don't even say, tell us some stuff and we'll get you more food. They just give you more food and then maybe tell us some stuff. And some, so you don't. And they say, sorry. They just beat you again for a long time. Then they wave that flag at you again give you that nice meal, give you that warm bed, that pulsatility of looking forward to the respite and the shelling, looking forward to the good, away from the bad, drives people insane. That's how they break people. So another really nasty analogy is if you're trying to quit crack cocaine, you don't just have every now and again a little bit of crack. You just quit because the temptation and the feedback loop are enormous. Just the same way, by the same psychological pathways, for many people, having a cheat meal, especially later into a diet, does break up the monotony. But it introduces such a radical stimulus that ramps up desire for only one thing, more cheat meals. And if it's a scheduled cheat meal, it'll literally drive you insane because every week, the only thing you're looking forward to is that cheat meal. As you're eating it, you get to a point is as you're eating the cheat meal, you already hate it because every bite bling brings you closer and closer to not having any food left on your plate. That is a terrible, terrible place to be psychologically. Then just when you're hitting your stride midweek, when Wednesday or Thursday, let's say you cheat on Saturdays, Wednesday or Thursday, the rebound hunger. So, so after that cheat meal, the, the day after and the next day are usually terrible. Your hunger is going to be through the roof. Your cravings are through the roof. It's like giving somebody crack when they're trying to quit. Then by Wednesday or Thursday, the cravings will have subsided and you'll be back to really trucking it. You won't feel like you need a cheat meal. But by Friday, you're thinking of that cheat meal that's going to come on Saturday again. And you're not living in the moment. 
your entire life is contorted into what's going to happen for that one meal on Saturday. You plan it. We've all been there. You plan what the cheat meal is going to be. You savor it. And it always disappoints because as soon as you start eating it, you know it's going away. You get into that cycle, and it's a very terrible cycle for most people. My recommendation is quite contrary. You're going to diet? Embrace the darkness. It's not going anywhere. But once you embrace it, you find to be that it's really not that bad. One of the last things you want is flickers of light and of hope because they actually make things worse. I can make one final analogy. It's like talking to an ex-girlfriend or an ex-boyfriend that you used to be madly in love with. How do you break it off and how do you heal? You don't talk to them ever. You don't look at pictures of them. You stay completely out of touch. But if they come into your life every now and again, it makes things worse. It doesn't make things better. Right. So dieting, the urge, even the urge to reproduce is secondary to the urge to eat. There's only one human urge more powerful than the urge to eat, and that is the urge to drink water <laughs> because it kills you faster. Right? But aside, you know, nobody's restricting water on a diet. Eating is the most powerful psychological warping tool you can have, and I wouldn't play around with it. I have before, and it's always bit me in the ass. It makes dieting harder when you cheat, not easier for most people. And here's the kicker. For the people whom it doesn't make dieting harder, can they do it? Sure. Does it offer any benefits? No. You just eat a bunch of food and your body ramps up metabolism, burns it off. It stalls your progress for a bit. Do you get any kind of plus one overcompensation of metabolism from a cheat meal? Absolutely not. Now, diet breaks are a little bit of a different story. A diet break is not a just gigantic cheat festival. You go back to maintenance eating for one to three weeks. During that time, certain metabolic factors start to heal up. Your metabolism starts to go faster. Your hunger hormones and your hunger nervous system uh, or hunger components of your, of your nervous system start to become a little bit more relaxed. And then after that, there is uh, the ease of dieting and the ease of fat loss can occur much more readily. So there is that. What I would say is in my experience – if you're in the hole deep enough, one to two weeks doesn't cut it. Three weeks might, but then four weeks is better. So my personal recommendation is if you're going to take plenty of time anyway, you might as well take plenty of time and do a maintenance phase. So my personal view on diet refeeds, especially from a psychological and a hunger hormone perspective, I think the best thing you can do is diet at a slow and steady pace for two to four months. Take a full maintenance phase, if you still need to get leaner, another two, one to three months, depending on how you're feeling. And then finish up the diet with another two to four months of dieting. So if you're not stage, if you're not going to be stage ready by the end of this current diet that you're on, I would recommend taking a break of a month at least and then going another eight weeks. The good thing is, is after a month of diet break, you're going to feel so damn good. You're going to feel like you can go forever. After a week, if you're crushed enough with your diet, you're still going to suffer. After two or three, it's better, but I feel like you might as well just break it up into two diets by that point. Uh, one week has the convenience of being an emergency measure you can use every now and again, even if you saw the bodybuilding show coming up. You might be able to take a week just to heal up a little so you can grind the rest of it. Two and three weeks is already going to throw you off of your schedule considerably. So you might as well plan your show in such a way, quarter of this, 
plan your show in such a way that the last diet you do before the show, you already started very lean. And it's just the crispness and that conditioning and that real show glisten that you want to do. So I would say that the show diet should be relatively short phase after a pretty good maintenance phase. The bulk of your fat loss protocol should have already occurred. And while I'm on this rant, and I, I posted this on Facebook before, but it's been so long ago and I had so few followers back then, relatively speaking, that I think it bears uh, possibly bears a re reintroduction. There's a huge fallacy in fitness and, and, and sport, and I'm sure you're aware of it, Steve, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it uh, after I, I say it. The idea that the first time you get in shape with a personal trainer who's also a coach for bodybuilders is when you should go on stage. Your first diet, 20 weeks long or 16 weeks, you should step on stage at the end of that. People end up grinding so hard to step on stage that, first of all, they don't look all that great. Second of all, they have this massive rebound in tons of psychological issues that they have to deal with sometimes for months, sometimes for years afterwards because they rushed it too, too long. So I think when individuals that can't see their abs yet clearly talk about dieting for a show, they should just shut up about talking about dieting for a show, talk about dieting to get very lean. Once they're very lean, they take a maintenance phase, and it's going to be tough but not impossible to be very lean. Then at the end of the maintenance phase, they're still very lean, and then they diet for the show. If you start dieting for bodybuilding show in anything other than very lean, you're going to have a bad time. Steve, what are your, what are your thoughts on that, that uh, phenomenon of people trying to encourage com competitiveness right out of the gate? Yeah, well, I think something I'm actually seeing that's related to that is actually people who are quite competitive already or have competed before, but they're not starting as lean as what you're stating here. They're kind of starting very kind of, well, like I kind of did for my first show, I had to lose 30 pounds, which I did straight, no maintenance phase, no Jeez. even small yeah. diet breaks. And I've that was that. really tough. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not fun. So actually, like you were saying, and if the listeners are interested, because I've just kind of started my prep, but I guess it's not actually the prep really yet because that will be after my maintenance phase, which Mike was talking about. So I'm planning and I am consulting with Jared Feather actually. And every at the end of every uh, cutting mesocycle, so after every four weeks, I'm taking a week diet break at maintenance and then going another four weeks maintenance and then going into prolonged maintenance phase. We're going to be very lean by this stage because I'm already quite lean now and then going into it. Um, and I think, and I'm looking forward to making my life a lot easier rather than, yeah, really stressing it. And you do, you see people who maybe even were, I, I actually competed against someone in my first show who was obese and he came all the way down just and straight into the show. And I mean, he credit to him and like, it was amazing, but he obviously didn't look like a, a proper bodybuilder should ho hopefully look very conditioned, very muscular. He needed more time to like Mike rightly pointed out phasic approaches to this sort of thing yep yep so i think uh i think that probably answers the question so just to recap most people are a bad idea um i think if you're really low on glycogen you're very ahead of your weight eat more clean carbs just eat more carbohydrate and more fruit and more vegetables and more rice and pasta you'll get super full your diet fatigue will fall off your weight will catch back up to where it's supposed to be and you'll also be able to eat a lot of carbohydrate and put that into your training. So when your glycogen is reloaded, that's really sweet. But if you cheat on a bunch of fat, fatty foods, you don't load fat. Fat loading is not a thing. So if you eat a pizza, okay, you had a pizza. But if you eat a bunch of pasta extra over a couple of days, you really fill out. You might even grow some muscle from the and anabolic drivers and definitely drop a lot of diet fatigue. So I would say that's much better than cheat meals. 
And then I would say for the, there are situations which arise in which one piece is a good idea, but I would say four to eight weeks is a real good idea for maintenance phase. So, and then when you're dieting, the psychology is very simple. When you're dieting, you're dieting, make friends with the restriction. If you stop looking for light at the end of the tunnel and you embrace the darkness, you'll be a cat. You can see in the dark. Uh, everything actually turns out to be not that scary. But if you keep waiting for it to end, keep waiting for a little glimmer of cheat meal hope, arduous. Brilliant. Yeah, I think just the fact, I know for me personally, I mean, I did a mini cut with weekly refeeds. I actually did one then without weekly refeeds. I just saw more weight loss in the second round doing it. In the first one, I mean, I'm a bit crazy as a lot of bodybuilders are, and I just stick to a diet. So even if I was feeling hungrier, it wouldn't have made me cheat. But I could see how that could happen for some people. Um, and yeah, like you rightly said, it kind of just ignites the fire and kind of gives you a flicker of hope and the body just wants more. So yeah, brilliant answer. And we're going to the next question from James Hart, who's asked, what other important bloods to get done for optimum performance and health? What are the differences between what doctors class as normal range and optimal range? Blood work? Yeah, blood work. Well, so on all the stuff the doctors say about health is true. About optimal? <laughs> there's, it's, it's a matter of trade-offs. Um, if you're interested in having the optimal amount of testosterone, you're asking a question about injectable testosterone. The more testosterone or its derivatives you inject, the more muscular you become, the more fatigue resistant you become, the leaner you become, et cetera, et cetera. Optimal is um, mega doses and it will cost you your health. They will cost you your sanity, but you sure as hell will be jacked and lean. Um, so I can't really say uh, anything about that, that it doesn't get into a drug talk that's probably irrelevant to the question. I will say that most doctors are okay with you having a natural production of testosterone um, that's, you know, anything higher than 300 nanograms per deciliter. Uh, and that's fine. You'll be healthy. Closer to 1,000 is when you're really going to feel really virile. It's the high end for natural. So for individuals that, I mean, obviously, if you're... Um, drug-free, there's nothing you can do about your test levels. Basically, I'm to eat food, get sleep, um, recover well. But if you are on TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, then uh, you can try to finagle a situation where you're getting anywhere between up to 200 milligrams per week uh, of injectable testosterone. I would say it starts to really give you a pretty good edge um, and real good sense of well-being while minimizing every effect. If you start moving up to 500, no doctor will prescribe that to you. That's a super pharmacological dose. That is for performance enhancement. That's still a very good dose. You won't have a lot of side effects. You'll get a lot of great effects. Anything up to and over 1,000 is business dose. It's got a lot, of, a lot of side effects, a lot of you know superhuman effects. But a lot of doctors will give you a prescription for TRT that I've seen, and it'll be something like 50 milligrams a week. And man, that just kind of sucks. Um, it's not going to be what you expected it. So if you can finagle with a doctor, anything higher than 50 up to 200 is reasonable for some medical practitioners. Um, as far as labs for everything else is concerned, uh, the doctor knows best. So your cholesterol values, et cetera, should be um, as low as possible for your LDL, as high as possible for your HDL. And uh, blood pressure should be as low as possible. Um, 
So on down the line, one thing I really can say, and, and my fiance is really big on this kind of stuff uh, because she sees lifters a lot and she's a, a fourth year medical student. She's almost done with med school. Um, something like blood pressure, a lot of people say absolutely the most ridiculous things you'll ever hear about it. Uh, and, and cholesterol is actually included in this, so I'll speak to both. Lifters will find the little Google articles about by weird people uh, based on one data point out of 50 that say, you know, your cholesterol doesn't matter and blood pressure is not a big deal, although the latter is really hard to find. And what they'll end up doing is they'll, many of these individuals are using anabolic steroids. Some are not, some just have crappy genetics or eat like crap or some combination of the three. And they'll say things like, well, you know, I know my blood pressure is a little bit high, but you know, how do I bring it down? And people say, well, you know, there's a beautiful cornucopia of pharmacology you can take with almost no side effects to reduce your blood pressure. And they'll say, well, I, I you know, I don't want to, I don't want to take artificial stuff. You know, I don't want to take any more pills, bro. You're already taking pills. And also, even if you're not taking any pills, chronic high blood pressure will kill you, will kill you. And it'll destroy your organs before it kills you. So to people listening, get your blood work done, natural or not. See your doctor twice a year, get all the basic tests, make sure you're healthy. If you're not healthy, use a combination of lifestyle adjustment, dosing adjustment, and taking the necessary pharma you have to in order to be healthy. Because, for example, a, bl a blood pressure medication that's very popular is called lisinopril. You take this tiny little tablet. It's practically free because it's available in generic form. Uh, it requires a doctor's prescription. It's a blood pressure medication. You take one little 10 or 5 milligram tab every day. You do not have high blood pressure. And the side effects include, for almost everyone, occasional cough, dry cough. And even that's incredibly rare. For almost all people, there are no side effects. You literally, if somebody put it in your food, you would have no idea you're taking it. The side effect is low blood pressure. And that absolutely preserves your health. It's not masking anything. Some people just have higher blood pressure. Some people insist on walking around at 220 pounds and they're supposed to be 170 according to their frame. That's most of us. That's most of us who are jacked or bigger than we should be for optimal health. You'll have to make some adjustments and don't go saying, though, I don't want to take, you know, I don't want to take any medicine. I want to fight the, there's uh, one uh, situation in particular where the guy's like, he's literally injecting testosterone, right? Using steroids. And he goes, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, take any, any, pharmaco any pharmacology to reduce my blood pressure uh, or improve my cholesterol. I want to I get the root of the problem. Motherfucker, the root of the problem is you're on gear. <laughs> so as soon as you want to quit your gear, that's fine. Root of the problem gone. And for a lot of people, the root of the problem is that they're big and they eat lots of junk food on top of their healthy food. That's the root of the problem. And they say, well, I don't want to take pharma. Well, then, then stop lifting that as much. Start trying running more and slough off a bunch of your muscle and your fat. Get leaner and you'll be in great health. Like, well, I don't want to do that. Choose. Because you could be 90% healthy by taking pharma in addition to being jacked. Or you can be 50% healthy by doing uh, the training to still be jacked and, and not taking pharma. Or you could be 100% healthy by weighing 155 you know, pounds or whatever, you know, like 100 and or what is it, 70 kilos or something. But, you know, uh, there are the choices. So no matter what you're looking for from your doctor, when he says, look, you're unhealthy in the following ways, do something about it. Don't just pretend, oh, the doctor doesn't know what a performance athlete looks like. That mm -hmm. may very well be the case. But it's not all about performance. You might want to stay alive a little longer than your performance uh, allows.
allows you to. Can I just confirm that you're saying deaspartic acid isn't going to create raise your testosterone levels to any significant degree? Uh, yeah, I don't think I was the one who needed to confirm that, but <laughs> yeah, there's been the people have been looking for the golden fleece of testosterone raising, and it seems that uh, nothing really works outside of getting enough sleep, enough food, and making sure that you're doing your best uh, to not introduce external stressors or high levels, uh, too high levels of uh, over MRV volume. That's a good way to drop your test is to go over your MRV. Um, but other than that, if you want much, much more testosterone, you got to go see your doctor. And if you live in a country in which anabolic steroids are legal for use, then you start using anabolic steroids. And with that comes 50 trillion negative effects you probably don't want. So it's not, a, it's not something you can take lightly. Cool. Right. We're yeah. going to uh, the next question. I thought that was really interesting. And I think uh, it's good that you said how doctors actually do know what they're talking about. I think sometimes people question, especially people in professions, and they kind of get a bit – because there's so much information online, but – having them to trust your doctor, I think is a really good thing that some people need to hear sometimes. So um, I've got a question from Lars Desmet, who's essentially asked, what's the best way to train your traps? But it's also included our explosive movements such as power shrugs, snap grip, high pulls, clean variants. Are they good for optimizing hypertrophy of the traps? Yes, they are. But they come with a really high fatigue. Um, I wouldn't say risk fatigue cost and they come with a slightly higher injury risk than conventional bodybuilding movements. So while they're incredibly effective, I'm not entirely sure they're worth it, especially if you're training the rest of your body really hard, the rest of your body's really beat up. Now that it comes time to do all these cleans or whatever, maybe in a position where they might not injure you themselves, but they're interfering with other things. Deadlifts are really hard after you do you know, high rep hang cleans or something like that. Your back work might suffer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm more of a fan of using more isolation movements for the traps in a program in which you're trying to develop everything else to be more of a bodybuilder. If you aren't super hardcore into growing all your muscles, if you don't really care about some of them, you just want big traps, yeah, the Olympic derivatives or the weightlifting derivatives are a pretty good idea to incorporate as long as you do them with good technique. But there are other uh, functions uh, you know, that work well, all sorts of various kinds of shrugs. Now, uh, in shrugs, you got to go, you know, super high and preferably back. So I do most of my shrugs bent over at about a 15-degree angle so that I hit the meat of the traps instead of just the, uh, you know, the levator scapulae muscles and, you know, uh, just end up training an internal muscle that doesn't really even appear to physiology, although that will thicken your back if you do that. Um, and uh, your traps are involved in scapular elevation, but they're involved a lot more in retraction. So doing an elevation retraction combination and pulling your traps uh, up and back this way and then back down and up and back this way is better than doing the, you know, the chicken dance where you pull them forward with a barbell. I'm sure you've, you've seen that at various commercial gyms. Um, and with traps, I'll tell you what, their training frequency, op the optimal training frequency is quite high. Um, and uh, you can train them three, four times a week, potentially pretty hard. They heal really fast. They also get a lot of stuff from back work, so they tend to be pretty easy to hit. One exercise that I love for shoulder development in general, which is the traps as well, is upright rows. I'm in, I don't love upright rows. I'm in love with upright rows. So um, I think they're phenomenal, and you got to row the bar as high as your shoulder health will allow. Some people, that ends here. For me, it ends just about up here. And if you do upright rows, especially with full range of motion, you're going to find that your traps are just destroyed from that stuff. So those are kind of my base recommendations. I think our traps article 
is already published on Renaissance. And if it's not, it's going to be. So if you go Renaissance Periodization, Com. You look at our blog, there's a trap training tips article on how to train traps. And if it's not up there yet, it will be very soon. Once you get to that article, um, it's going to have all the sets and reps and stuff outlined for you. Brilliant. Yeah, I'll, if it is available, I'll link it below. If not, I'll link Perfect, the, to the blog so people can get there as soon as possible if they watch this in, in the past. Uh, so awesome. uh, we get to the next question from... Abel, um, and he has asked, it's quite a long question. So he's been wondering, and he said he posted it on his wall. I wonder about the science of doing 20 to 50,000 push-ups a year. What does the accumulating volume accomplish? He said, this might sound very silly, but if you do the math, it's two to three times the actual volume of doing heavy benching in the optimal rep range of 10 to 20 sets per week in the six to 15 rep range. And there is literature showing that doing two to three times the volume with very light load training that you can would do for normal training lifting can accomplish the same results. So could you do bodyweight push-ups every day over the course of the year and accomplish the same benefits as heavy lifting by virtue of accumulating volume over time? No, because that literature is exclusively done in short-term studies. And it is my very sincere, educated opinion that if you extrapolated those studies to a year or more, the gains would significantly fall off. Um, probably the primary way in which high repetition training results in a lot of growth is through metabolite uh, generation. And I think it becomes your body's adaptation mechanisms to buffer metabolites increase rapidly in, a, in about a month of training for high reps. You actually just really, really suck at generating metabolites and you just succumb to nervous system fatigue, if anything, before you get a whole lot of burn in there. And the hypertrophy mechanisms probably fall off as well. So uh, can you get huge pecs doing push-ups? Yes, if you're for first year of training, yes. My first probably half year of serious weight training, I never bench pressed. All I did was push-ups and I did a lot of them. My favorite was super wide grip push-ups. And I remember actually generating delayed onset muscle soreness in the chest doing super wide grip push-ups. Um, so when I first benched, I weighed like 55 kilos and I uh, started benching and I benched um, uh, about 80 kilos for a max the first time I tried, which was pretty good mm -hmm. considering I never bench pressed before, but I had already built a pretty good pushing complex. I remember people telling me to bench and I was like, nah, you know, I like doing push-ups and they work and they're, and I already had a pretty impressive chest for my size at that point. So I really, uh, started to, uh, bench press after that. But now that I've been bench pressing for years and years and years, I do push-ups occasionally in my routine, but I always do them as a very later exercise. I do them metabolite style, usually with really short breaks or after an isolation movement for that pre-exhaustion effect. And if I try to do push-ups to get as a main effect, um, I'll just get really tired. I'll get really no metabolite effect whatsoever from them, especially even if I try for super high reps into failure. After a couple of weeks, I don't even get a pump or a burn anymore. Um, we can look at individuals in the population who do tons and tons of push-ups but don't do anything weighted. Uh, military exclusively does push-ups all the time. Gymnasts do push-ups all the time exclusively, and while their arms are big and stuff like that from pull-ups, their chests don't tend to be very big at all. Gymnasts have very unimpressive chests. 
probably the only muscle group they have other than their legs that's unimpressive. Everything else is jacked. But, um, you know, military guys barely have any big pecs at all. Man. Their sum total cumulative push-up volume is completely insane. Loading is a factor in a long-term hypertrophy. And this is something Eric Helms and I chatted about before and we wholeheartedly agree on. You know, you you got to use heavy weights in the long term. You can get away with tricks here and there. High reps have their place. But if, if you are using, you know, just push-ups for your chest, you're going to get a bigger chest. Maybe if you start weighing 60 kilos and eventually you weigh 70 kilos, you'll have a big chest at 70 kilos. But you're not going to have a big chest at 100 kilos by getting there with push-ups. You're going to have to lift much more heavy weight. It's just um, at some point it turns into the same idea that maybe you'll be able to do running um, or even, well, let's say, bleacher stadium walks. Do you know what a stadium stadium walk is, like a stair walk? Yeah. You just, yeah, you just like do lunges up and down stadium bleachers. Um, that's a resisted load. It's high rep. It's certainly going to give you a, a burn. So metabolite effect is there. You will grow muscle like that for a month or two or if you're a beginner, three or four. After that, nobody's ever gotten big doing that stuff. And wrestlers and stuff do it all the time. Their legs aren't very big um, because they know that, and everyone knows, you got to go lift heavy weights to get big. So it's one of those situations that because the loading isn't there, the longer you do push-ups and the higher the reps get and the worse the metabolite uh, responses get, the more you're left with, okay, well, it's not heavy enough to grow through mechanical tension. It's no longer producing a whole lot of metabolites. Then the work effort to growth ratio really sucks. So you'll have to just grind your joints into a pulp going for smaller and smaller levels of growth where you could have done one 20th the number of actual pushes with, you know, three times the weight and gotten significant hypertrophy. Cool. No, yeah, I think, and I liked actually how you brought that back to it, the kind of uh, what they call the pathways of hypertrophy. So tension, um, stress, and uh, metabolites. So uh, damage and metabolites, mm-hmm. sorry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought it yeah, was mainly an overload issue. For sure. At some point, it's just not really damaging because it's not novel and it's not overloading um, on tension because it's not heavy enough. And that contributes to lack of damage. And then uh, the metabolite situation you get used to after a while. And that also costs you in the damage department and it costs you in the metabolite department. So either way, whatever the mysterious ways to hypertrophy are, are, you know, are found to be uh, heavy resistance, I don't think it's ever going to take a second place to anything else. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Uh, so we're going to the next question. I think that was really well answered uh, from Arash Ensani, um, who has asked, is it less effective to train different muscle groups differently during a given mesocycle? For example, if one has small legs, do hypertrophy for legs during some of the mesocycles where you've already started doing some strength for the upper body? Um, so he's talking about mesocycle one to three, hypertrophy in all muscle groups, mesocycle four, hypertrophy for lower body, strength for upper body, and then getting into strength just for everything in another mesocycle, then peaking. So kind of, could you do strength for your lower body and then hypertrophy for your upper body or vice versa? Would that be something you could think about doing? Um, Would that allow you, I guess, to be able to overload and develop your upper body more than your lower body or vice versa? Mm -hmm. So if you train, let's say your upper body, let's just say a muscle, muscle one, you train for strength. Muscle two, you train for hypertrophy. 
because you train muscle one for strength, the volume you use for it is relatively low. The fatigue for it that you're going to generate, systemic fatigue, is relatively low. So the muscle you're training for hypertrophy is going to be advantaged. It's actually better for muscle B to be the only one being trained for hypertrophy and not muscle A to be trained for hypertrophy at the same time. Because hypertrophy training for muscle A is more of a systemic tax and will inter interfere with recovery adaptation and the ability to train hard for muscle B. But if it's being trained in the strength range, you can actually slam muscle B more. So if muscle A is trained in strength and muscle B in hypertrophy, it's better for muscle B. On the other hand, if you want muscle A to get really strong, does hypertrophying muscle B at the same time interfere? I think it does. Because hypertrophy training is higher volume, it's more disruptive homeostatically, and it causes more resources to be funneled into uh, its own priority. So that if you are, for example, you just want to get stronger in your upper body, but you're training your legs for size, very consistently sore legs will take a recovery hit even while you try to train your upper body for strength. But the legs will love it because they get priority. The upper body won't. So you got to be careful when you're training for strength for one thing or hypertrophy for another thing. You're not going to get much stronger in that thing you're training for strength if you get much bigger in the thing you're training for hypertrophy. But if you back off on the hypertrophy and increase the strength volumes, well, you're not getting a whole lot of size now, but you're getting considerable hypertrophy, or sorry, considerable strength now for the muscles in which you're using. So I would say that maybe a better approach is to put some muscles on the back burner for maintenance where you do train them strength training fashion, but you understand that you're not going to get super duper crazy strong, just a little bit stronger while you really hypertrophy the crap out of the other muscles. So you've got your systemic MRV and you make room for it by taking the muscles that you're training for strength or usually training for hypertrophy, you train them for strength. It's not as fatiguing. There's more room for the other muscles to expand to their own muscle specific MRVs. So maybe you get too tired to do more than 16 sets of quads per week if you're training everything else to grow. But you take your upper body and you train it just for strength, you might be able to get away with 18 or 20 sets of, uh, of quads uh, for your MRV. And then that would be a benefit because you would actually get an enhanced growth response. But unfortunately, I don't think it works the other way around. You can't expect maximum strength gains when you're doing the best hypertrophy uh, program you can for other parts of body. Cool. Now, that's really actually really interesting to hear because if I can think, like the audience might be thinking, well, how would you apply this? I've actually got a competitor who's doing men's physique and which you wear board shorts. So you don't show off your kind of quads your hamstrings your glutes at all so for him we put his leg work at just minimum effective dose so it's just being sustained and he's putting everything upper body is on kind of the front burner so something i could actually change within the program is at the moment he's in the hypertrophy rep ranges for his leg work and i could actually change that to a higher intensity and bringing down the volume and potentially that would actually help give more to the uh to the upper body absolutely 100 yep but it's not going to get very strong, <laughs> which will suck. No. <laughs> cool. Um, so we'll get on the next question, which is from Jacob. And he's asked, how long does it take the body to get used to slash flush out retained water from an increase in sodium? Difficult one. 
Yeah, man, it depends a lot on genetics. If you have average genetics, if you're salt sensitive, never. <laughs> um, you increase your sodium and you keep a certain fraction of that for good. And that's why your blood pressure goes up. And if you're salt sensitive, then you need to not eat that much salt because then your blood pressure is going to be too high all the time. But generally speaking, from most manipulations, if your body's in a pretty good state, several days to a week, um, which is why it's funny when guys start to cut their salt um, half out or two weeks out before a bodybuilding show. It's kind of insane because you're going to make all the adaptations and then your body's just going to hoard all the salt it can and make you a balloon animal on stage. So um, I think that a couple of days to a week is usually what salt alterations take. And if it's not happening for you in that short of time, make sure that you uh, are checking to see your blood pressure and how that works because it could be a risk. Cool. And actually, in a related note, and I've thought about asking this before, is there a general period of time when, say, you go from, say you go from cutting and you go into maintenance? Um, is there a certain period, or even into massing, is there a certain period of time where that glycogen change, because you're having more carbohydrates, you're storing more glycogen, where that stabilizes? Because I guess if you're cutting then massing, the first week, you're probably going to gain quite a significant amount just from water and glycogen. Um, does it last more than a week? I think about a week. Yeah, uh, I'll put you this way. The first week is a wash. The first week of any diet is um, you should track your body weight, but it's just going to do some funny, curious things, and you shouldn't really worry about what it does. Um, the first week of my recent diet that I just started, I think, uh, pardon me, um, I lost like two kilos, two and a half kilos. And I'm like, oh, my God, I must be so hypocaloric. But then I kept eating and I regained back like a kilo and a half just from renormalization. And then now it's, you know, half a kilo every week kind of situation. But, you know, that first week is really just a wash. And then on a mass phase, I think a lot of people get really scared after their cut is over. They'll start massing and they'll gain like five kilos in a couple of days. And they go, oh, my God, this is it. Like, I'm just getting fat. And their abs will get blurry and everything. And then they'll just keep eating pretty well and have steady cheat meals every now and again, but mostly clean food and just at a slight a surplus. And when about a week and a half, um, sometimes two to three weeks if you just did a bodybuilding show, uh, you're going to get your abs back again. And you're like, oh, my God. And your weight goes back down again. And you're like, oh, this is great. And then from there, you gain slowly. So one big piece of advice is, Watch the scale in the first couple of weeks, but but don't don't uh, invest too much psychologically into it because it can be telling you all kinds of stuff that's not really happening. Brilliant. And I think actually talking about coming into your first week of dieting, coming from maintenance to cutting is a lot less of a kind of head fuck than going from massing to cutting. Not only is the calories huge difference, but the weight drop that you can see uh, is just, just dramatic and it kind of screws you over a little 100%. bit. 100%. Cool. So we'll get on to the next question from Carl Spencer, who has asked, recently Mike mentioned that for general strength slash training, a strongman-esque style of training would be best. Could he go into why that is? And he said, I can probably guess myself, but it'd be great to get your thoughts on weighted carries, medleys, general training style, etc. Mm. I think the point in reference was functional training. What's more functional for your muscles than carrying around oblong, awkward, heavy shit? You know, what's strong? And I remember Dr. Stone, my professor at East Tennessee State, always used to have fun with that question. Another fun question of his was uh, how strong is strong enough? 
Uh, of course, the implied answer was there's no such thing. But I remember he was a real big fan of like the isometric mid-thigh pull and how much you could clean and squat as real big indices of general strength. And very, very much a lot to be said for that. And I remember one time I was uh, having lunch in the lab, taking a break from lab work and watching World's Strongest Man on the computer. And he came up behind me and took some of my lunch to eat. And uh, he asked me, uh, and I said, Doc, check this out. It was the uh, 2014 World's Strongest Man, I believe. And they had an event called Natural Stone Loading, which were just big fucking rocks that you put on a platform, like at waist height. They're just rocks, man. There's no like, well, there's awkward place. There's not really anywhere to grab. They weren't like Atlas stones, so they weren't conveniently shaped and, and, and could allow a rep, or like a repeatable technique. And I was like, Doc, how's that for a test of strength? And he's like, well, it doesn't get much more direct than that. Hmm. I mean, here's the, you want to be strong? Pick up this big ass rock, put it over there. <laughs> oh, I can't do it. I don't give a shit. What else you say about how strong you are in overhead press, pull up, whatever. You can't pick up a big rock and put it somewhere. You're not strong. Strong man does even better than that. Not only is it the big rock, but it's a bunch of different stuff. Can you carry? Can you drag? Can you push? Can you pull? Can you throw? It's using the human body to show off how strong it is. Not in weightlifting, not in powerlifting, where it's a very prescribed movements, which are actually the best way to build strength. But the best way to learn to show it off is to do strongmen. If you are uh, training in strongmen, what is going to happen to you in the real world that you're not used to? Nothing. Groceries aren't shit. If you try to do a combat sport like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, human beings are much softer than rocks and, and metal pipes. They're actually easier to pick up because they're even less painful on your joints, right? Um, you can manhandle anything, and I would hate to see one of the top strongmen start Brazilian jiu-jitsu because he would hurt a lot of feelings within about six months of training. If you cannot be armbarred because you're that strong in your bicep because you're used to holding 250-kilogram you know, barrels and running around with them, I mean, geez, it, it creates a lot of problems. So I think strongmen, by its very definition of heavily lifting very awkward things from in an infinite number of angles – uh, and every muscle group is tested, is the functional sport for strength. If you want a functional sport for all around, CrossFit, that's it. You look no further than CrossFit because a CrossFitter is the most functional mover, mover arounder that you can ever find. Um, and after that, you know, we got strong, we got CrossFit. And after that, it really comes down to sport-specific training. So if you want to apply your strength in a particular way, then you have to see the demands of the sport. You have to uh, design a plan that addresses those demands of the sport. And when you do that, then you have a sport-specific plan. But for general fitness, general strength, strongman. For a general, uh, so for general strength, strongman. Uh, and, and by the way, when I ask how strong men train, they mostly train like powerlifters and bodybuilders in the sense that they do sets of five to eight reps with compound heavy basics. And they also train the events, which are important, which is that that link to real world strength. Um, and then CrossFit, which is like a high rep, super high rep strongman, basically, um, plus gymnastics, et cetera, should be the other component if you want to be super all around fit. And I don't think there's much debate about that anymore. No, yeah, I think definitely. I think CrossFit's getting a lot less hate now. People are it's getting better as a in the, in the field people are practicing it better but also it's getting less hate people understand it a little bit more uh he actually had an additional side he has a few additional sides but something i think would be interesting to hear is he just wanted to know more and i don't know how much you can expand on this more about your work with broderick 
uh, Chavez. Um, he said he's been following his podcast for quite a while and was just wondering kind of what you're doing with him at the moment. If I don't know if you can say anything more to that. Yeah. Broderick is incredibly smart and knows a ton of stuff. And what he does for me is he consults me on advanced nutrition and particularly manipulations of, of, of diets with regard to competing in bodybuilding eventually. And I know some of the stuff. I know a lot of it. But you, you got to have some people in your life that know more about it than you do and can BS test your ideas. And my main relationship with Broderick is that I consult with him on the phone once a week or once every two weeks or sometimes more often. He says, okay, I think you're on the right track with these ideas. Keep going. Or respectfully, you're an idiot. What the hell are you talking about? So, um, for example, um, in my massing phase, I wanted to stay very lean to continue to build muscle because leaner people build more muscle. Broderick would tell me when I was going too fast and when I needed to slow down. And also when I was just being paranoid about not getting fat and I had well more muscle to grow. And, you know, a lot of people have said this. I'm not the first person to say this. Coaches need coaches. It just can't all be you. For a long time, I was my only coach because I didn't trust anybody else. I thought I was super smart. I thought I knew my stuff. I was correct, but there are other super smart people that know their stuff. And when you learn to trust them, I don't ever have to say, I don't ever have to do anything Broderick tells me that I don't want to. His input is always an educated piece of advice that I can take or leave. And he knows that, but I take most of it because he's almost always right. And he is wonderful in the sense that he doesn't just tell me guru stuff. He can explain with reference to physiology, including cited literature, if I'd like every single thing he ever says. He's incredibly well studied. So I'm left to begrudgingly do what he says most of the time. Uh, and that's pretty much his role for me. And I, I think that anyone who ever has any questions for him, et cetera, is the guy's brilliant. And if, um, you know, uh, advanced nutrition, pharmacology, that sort of thing, uh, he's, the, he's the man. And as uh, he's been interviewed by Lyle McDonald recently uh, as an expert on performance-enhancing drugs, and that's something he knows better than most people could ever hope or ever want. <laughs> so, uh, and he knows tons and tons about nutrition, weight gain, etc. And he's a very reasonable voice. He never really says anything that sounds too crazy. Um, and anything he says that sounds crazy supports with literature. So, I, um, that's my answer about that. Brilliant. No, I thought that was. I, I, I was genuinely interested as well to hear kind of um, the relationship. And I think from. The fact I coach a lot of coaches in the field as well, and I, I love it. I get a lot of enjoyment coaching other coaches. Um, but also I've started consulting with Jared Feather, as you know, and it's exactly the same thing as I was coaching. And I have coached myself for years. But sometimes it's nice to have that objective person looking in at you and also yeah. someone else to kind of, yeah, bullshit test you and make sure you're on point. And yeah. I know, I mean, Jared's a very smart individual and, um, I'm glad that I can get some time with him to learn from him as well and a similar relationship you've got with Broderick. So. Yeah, you bet. I think there's two real big advantages on getting coached by someone else at, 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 on your par uh, of, of knowledge. You guys, everyone already knows the basics, so that's good. There's no debate there. There's two things you can get from it. One is some unique tips, tricks, and quirks that don't mean a damn thing for general fitness but are very valuable when you've already reached you know very far into your sport you need every piece of help you can get 
And in addition to that, like you mentioned, that the, the bullshit detector, you knew they'd have some ideas about what to do. And they're like, ah, come on, Steve, you should know better than that. And Jared probably tells you, like, come on, you really think this is going to work? And you're like, ah, I want it to work. And he's like, come on, really? And you're like, all right, back to the plan, right? So those tips and tricks and quirks and the BS testing. And if everyone knows the basics, then after that, it's all good. But I think that, you know, coaches are most valuable when they can guide someone with very little experience who doesn't even know the basics. But they don't lose all of their value and they're super valuable for individuals who already know what they're doing as a skeptical eye and a, and a BS test and as well someone who introduces novel ideas that somebody might not have had. These ideas don't violate the basics, but they're interesting different ways to do things. Brilliant. Um, and have we got time for one more kind of topic or what, question? What time is it? Uh, it's just, well, for me, it's just gone eight. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. One more is great. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, well, it's still with the same person. He's basically asked for your thoughts on Shiko. Um, he just generally wanted to know what you thought of the programming and that sort of thing. Yeah. Boris Shiko is um, the single greatest living powerlifting coach. I would actually probably say he's the greatest powerlifting coach of all time. Uh, to to complement that list, I would say that the second best powerlifting coach working today is Chad Wesley Smith. Um, people always think I say that because Chad and I are friends. Let me make very clear: Chad and I are not friends. I don't like Chad. I appear in pictures of him. We're smiles, but you know what I'm saying. We look at each other wrong. We're fighting. And uh, Chad looks really big and scary, but pff, I've, I've dropped him a couple times. He knows too. Now I'm just like, boom, like that. And he just like, you know, he runs, he usually hides behind Marissa and uh, <laughs> the usual, it's really embarrassing for him. So um, Boris Shako is the man. Um, why am I saying that? His track record's obscene. Uh, he's produced the best raw lifters on the planet. Um, so many of them, it's getting absurd. Um, I have read his work. I have been involved in translating his work in its original Russian. I've read it in English. Everything he says is incredibly meticulous, incredibly thought through, super all referenced. His understanding of formal, what we call in the, in the scientific field, modern periodization is superlative. And it is, he, 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 you know, one of the stupidest things you could ever tell Shaco is, hey, I've got like a meet in a couple weeks. What should I do? He'd be like, you don't have an annual plan? He'd be like, no. He'd be like, that's ridiculous. You need an annual plan. Everything is planned to the letter and intelligently has room for adjustment, right? Um, the way he does his particular quirky things aren't that quirky. And when they are, we don't have to agree with him. But he has so few quirks. You know, uh, the Russians almost never have any quirks. You know, they say, how do you improve your deadlift? They're like, deadlift and get stronger hamstrings. And you're like, fuck, don't you have any tricks? And they're like, I don't understand what that means. <laughs> so Shaco is really, really down to earth. Uh, amazing. It comes with my highest regard. One thing that I have to do, say, is pay him or pay his associates, download, I think he has an app maybe, uh, get the app or read his books and get your customized training either from him or his associates or get it for uh, uh, read his literature that he writes and design your own program. Do not do a Shaco program off of the internet. All of his programming, he was asked before what he thinks about Shaco programs. 
He goes, there's no such thing. These are all custom designed for particular individuals or particular classes of individual to which you might not fit. So a lot of the people who run Shaco are like, oh man, it really fatigued the shit out of me. It was too frequent. It was too much. He designs Kirill Sarachev's bench programming. By the way, Kirill Sarachev, for those not in the know, is the greatest bench presser of all time, 739 pounds, I think. Uh, something completely stupid. It's not worth counting anymore. <laughs> um, Kirill benches heavy every week and a half. So where's this high-frequency stuff I keep hearing about Shaco? Well, that's for his lifters that are tiny, tiny little Russian girls that recover in a day and a half. Yeah, they can squat seven times a week or whatever. But it's all customized. So don't make the mistake of just finding a Shaco program online, doing one weird program you got from your friend that wasn't even tailored to you remotely, um, and uh, do the actual programming, and I guarantee you will benefit. Um, and Shaco, you know, another really cool thing about his program is something really cool to learn from him. And he's written pretty extensively on this, but I just like to throw it in there. Something that one of the reasons he's so wise is an incredibly awesome idea of the fact that not all training days should be hard days. And Shaco actually has a three-tier system. I, in my own programming, mostly use a two-tier system, but he has a three-tier system of super overloading days, meat and potatoes, get the work done days, and very easy recovery days. And he sequentially alters them to reach your goals because not all days can be overloading days because your ability to recover always lags behind your ability to stimulate. So very, very advanced stuff. Chad Wesley Smith does something very similar. Um, and actually, when you compare their programming side to side, it starts to be really difficult to, to see who wrote what. Um, the only thing I would disagree with Shaco on at face value is I think that higher repetition sets and just slightly more derivative work, less compound lifts, less competition lifts in the deep off season and the deep preparatory phase, I think have some value, but Shaco's approach at it is conservative. Now I'll tell you what, you're never going to go wrong with a conservative approach. So his guys are big, they're strong, they lift the most weight and I can't argue with that. So my discrepancy with Shaco, teeny tiny, uh, comes super highly recommended. And, and mind you, I'm not just uh, sucking the teat here. There are a lot of our powerlifting coaches that I would not uh, recommend. Um, and I'll simply leave them out of this discussion. <laughs> so uh, it's not every, I don't think everyone's doing a great job. I think a lot of people are doing a pretty bad job, to be completely honest. Uh, Shaco is not one of those people. He's absolutely one of the best. Awesome. No, I think that's fantastic. I actually really enjoyed hearing your thoughts about Shaco and actually really valuable for people to hear about the programming because you hear people are following Shaco programs and yeah, it's just like any cooker cutter program. It's not going to be individualized to you. It's not going to be the best for you. Um, so yeah, really, really valuable stuff. For a long time when single ply powerlifting was big before the Rob revolution in 2008, 2009, I remember between like 2006 and 2009, it was, it was popular. Shaco was the DUP, right? I'm doing Shaco. I'm doing Shaco. Are you doing Shaco? What the yeah. hell is Shaco? And I actually looked up some of the programs and they look completely absurd. And then I read about what the rationale was and I was like, Oh, that makes sense in that context, but you people are using it all wrong. And they were like, I'm using Shaco. It's like people now, GP, GP, GP. Wait, I got one, ready? Ready, ready, watch this, ready? DUP, DUP, right? <laughs> I DUP, I don't even lift anymore. I just DUP. They don't even call it lifting, right? So for a while, you remember that. It's coming. It's kind of coming easy now. Yeah. It's a little slowing down. But uh, at, at one point, 
if you weren't duping and IFYMing, you were some kind of totally <laughs> ignorant person. Who did you do you even science, bruh? Like, I mean, it was obvious DUP and IFYM. And the same thing was true for Shaco for a while. It was just something people said to fit in. Um, there is no such thing as Shaco. It's, a, uh, it's not even a method. It's just a careful technical analysis and an approach to problems with modern periodization. Remember the first time I read a lot of Shaco's work, I was like, this shit is like obvious. This is awesome. This is all the principles put into practice. And I was like, where the fuck is the magic? Right. And there was no magic, but you also look at DUP and, and then you talk to someone who actually researches it uh, like Mike Zoros. And he's like, yeah, I mean, it's just variation so that you don't get too fatigued and we don't vary by rep ranges by 50 reps, you know, in one week we vary by two or three here and there. And you still do the phases and you still deload. And you're like, that's just intelligent training. And he's like, yeah, totally. And you're like, well, what the hell is DUP, right? So uh, it's one of those things where if you critically examine things, they make sense on their own merits uh, without having really cool, fancy names behind them. So I would say stop with the Shaco stuff. Intelligent training is always good, no matter who writes it. And Shaco just has a record of writing a lot of awesome, awesome training. Mike, you realize the next thing is going to be do even MRV. Do you MRV? I, I fucking know, Steve. <laughs> Steve, that, that, that keeps me, I have nightmares about that. It keeps me <laughs> up at night. Um, it's, t it's terrible. Yeah, MRV is, is starting to become a little bit of a catchphrase. Uh, but, uh, you know, and it's because it's a term I coined. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know the term yet, which is no problem at all because it's a useful term, but it's not very popular. So I see people asking other people online, the coaches I know, like, what do you think about MRV? And they're like, I don't know what that is. And they're like, really? And they're like, try to like alpha male those coaches. Like, what? Don't, aren't you in the know? And I just want to be like, hey, you shut up. Like, you didn't know what MRV was two weeks ago. Like, you're not, you know, you're not fitting in. There's no club. There's no MRV club, right? It's a term that has, you know, an effective use. And if you're using it, great. Um, but, you know, people do that in all kinds of fields. You try to, yeah. you always try to have the edge. You always want to seem like you're doing the new cool thing. So, you know, my next program will be the Shaco. DUP MRV <laughs> but if you don't like parts of it you can just replace them with IFYM because you can just <laughs> trade away whatever you don't like. oh dear no that's brilliant yeah, I, think, I think that's a good place to leave it and I want to again thank everyone for your brilliant questions we still have more to get to I'll probably do another round for more questions I really want to thank Mike again for just laying it down and giving some great content and value to everyone so thank you Mike and thank you everyone Thanks, folks. Take care.